Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. Hello, church online neighbors. I'm glad to be with you. My name is Michael. And yes, this is legitimately the first time in my life I have ever won a cardigan. It's itchy and I don't like it. I was gonna try to preach the whole sermon like this, but I can't. I made it about 15 seconds. Mr. Rogers made it 31 seasons and 895 episodes because he's a boss. All right, that feels much better. Today, I wanna start by sharing some of the great things that have happened in the last week because I want to remind you all that God is still moving and doing bigger things than we ever could have imagined while we've been under these stay-at-home orders. Last week, we had an all-time record number of people in our collectives with 121 people connecting online during the week. The Frederick News Post wrote an awesome article about collective and us doing church online. And just under 600 people joined us for Easter last week. I'm so proud of this church. I'm so proud of the fact that even though we're not living in an ideal world right now, and even though everything feels more difficult than it should, you all showed up, you all invited, and you all shared hope with people that needed it. Now, life has changed a lot over the past month. How we work, how we spend our time, where we shop, who we hang out with, and how we hang out with them. It's changed how we do church. And because of that, we actually changed the sermon series that we're going to be in over the next few weeks because this series wasn't originally a part of our 2020 plan. Today, we're kicking off a brand new series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it could be because I'm watching a lot of Daniel Tiger right now, and I mean a lot. When you feel so mad that you want to roar, take a deep breath. And count to four. I think we sing that almost every single day to our five-year-old. But really, the reason we made this change to start the series today is because now, more than ever, we need to be good neighbors. A few weeks ago, I pointed out that one of the problems that we face today is that we're treating everyone as if they're a part of our crowd when we really need to care about them like they're our community. And in this series, I want to take that thought a step further. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how to be a good neighbor in a pandemic, but realistically, how we can actually be a good neighbor all the time and create a culture now that has a lifelong impact in our neighborhoods, our communities, and our city. Today, we're going to be focusing on the question, am I a good neighbor? Am I a good neighbor? Being completely honest, if you asked me this question a few months ago, I would have said that I'm a great neighbor. I don't cause any problems. I park in the lines in our parking lot. I keep my sidewalk clear for other people who are on walks. I clean up after my dog. I don't throw parties. That's actually because I'm an introvert and large groups of people in my house is my nightmare, but my neighbors don't need to know that. Like I said, I am a great neighbor. But as walks have become a normal part of our way of life as a way of getting out of the house, I've realized that I don't even know my neighbors. And all the things I do to be a good neighbor really just make me a good citizen. So I want to learn how to be a good neighbor, and I hope you do too. 
And the story that's the foundation of this series comes from Jesus in the book of Luke. And this is how it starts in Luke 10. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So the catalyst of this story is a religious lawyer asking the question, what must I do to be saved? What boxes do I need to check? Now let me pause right here for a moment to address this because this is a question that many of us have asked before. What do I have to do to get God to love me? How good do I have to be? Can I earn my way into heaven? And here's the good news. You cannot earn your way into heaven. There isn't a checklist. There isn't a certain amount of good person points that you have to earn to experience forgiveness and grace and eternity with God. Because it isn't about our ability to do anything. It's about Jesus's goodness and the grace that he extends to us. And all we have to do is say yes to that goodness. And I recognize that doesn't make any sense, but that's what makes God so good. He offers us grace. He offers us endless second chances. He offers us freedom. And it isn't something we earn. It's free. Now back to the story. The guy asks, how do I get into heaven? And while this might seem like an innocent question, it was actually an attempt to trap Jesus. Jesus was driving the religious leaders nuts. So on more than one occasion, they would try to trip him up by asking a question that they believed was unanswerable. And this is one of those questions. It was an attempt to discredit Jesus, to prove that he wasn't actually the son of God. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? In other words, you're the religious dude. You know what the Bible teaches. Why don't you tell me what you think the answer is? Now, Jesus didn't have any kids, but this is a complete dad move right there. Dad, where should I put my shoes? Why don't you tell me where you should put your shoes? Oh yeah, on the shoe rack. Again, something that gets brought up in my house every single day. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the thing. The lawyer is 100% right. He's quoting the Old Testament, the pre-Jesus part of the Bible. And more specifically, he's quoting something called the Shema. In fact, he actually answers this question in the same way that Jesus answered this question over in Matthew 22. So on paper, the lawyer's doing really well. What is the greatest commandment? Love God, love people. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. But the religious man didn't stop just there. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's trying to find a loophole. You see, the lawyer doesn't take any issue with the concept of loving God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He actually thinks he's got that part down. He also doesn't ask Jesus to clarify how to love God. The only clarify, clarification he wants is in regard to loving people. Who is my neighbor? It's a very lawyerly question to ask. What is the definition of is? What is the definition of neighbor? What does that really mean? And the truth is he's trying to justify, to prove right, his behavior to not love some of the people in his life. This isn't a question so he can love more people. This is a question so he can love less people. And Jesus knows that. And so the best way Jesus can answer this question is through a story. He tells a parable called the Good Samaritan. 
He says this, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. Now, two quick things that the lawyer would understand when hearing this story from Jesus that's important for us to know as well. First, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was an infamous pathway for bandits. Its nickname was the way of blood. So it's pretty common knowledge that if you went down that road by yourself, there's a pretty good chance that you would get mugged, beaten, and even murdered. And so the Jewish man was either clueless to this or felt like it was worth the risk to travel on this road. Either way, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. The second thing is that Jerusalem was the city where the Jewish temple stood. And the church was at the top of a hill called Mount Zion. It was the highest point in the city, so you went up to the temple in order to worship. So anytime you read in the Bible that someone was going up to Jerusalem, or anytime someone heard Jesus say that phrase, they knew that that meant the person was on their way to worship God. And anytime you read that someone was coming down from Jerusalem, like the man in the story, they were coming down from worshiping God. They were leaving church. So culturally and in context, this man is coming back from church. He made a wrong turn or maybe a bad choice that put him in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was beaten and left for dead. The story continues. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A priest. In the Greek, the word priest come from, comes from the same word that means bridge builder. And that makes sense because the priest's job during that time was to be the connection between God and people. He was an advocate for people. So in this story, it shows us that he was at the temple, he was doing his job. And when he finished preaching, he was walking down, he was walking away from church. He saw a man in a ditch who needed help. And in spite of everything he had spent the whole day teaching in the temple, and challenging other people to do, he leaves the temple, sees a man in need, and passes him by. The temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, a temple assistant was another religious leader who worked alongside the priest. Think of him as a worship leader. He led the church in song and prayer. He would remind people how good and compassionate and loving God is. He would invite people into the presence of God. So you have a priest and a temple assistant, and they've been leading people in worship and preaching all day. And in this story that Jesus tells, after a long day of talking about God and leading other people, hopefully closer to God, on the way home from church, they see a Jewish man who has been beaten. To be honest, a man who is most likely someone they had bumped into in their worship services. And they cross the street. They walk over to the other side and they go on their way. Then a despised Samaritan came along. Now during that time, Jewish people and Samaritan people were enemies. They each thought the other people group was the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth. And they were actually originally a part of the same tribe, but there was a very messy separation that led to feelings of betrayal and hatred toward one another. And so what they would do is they would actually avoid each other at all costs. In fact, their hatred was so strong that Jewish people referred to Samaritans as dogs. They also didn't believe that the Samaritans were worthy of God. Jewish people wouldn't even step foot in Samaria. And so they were known to walk around that entire area when traveling. So of all the people to walk down the road, the least likely person to help the Jewish man 
was the Samaritan. But this is what happens. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Jewish or not, history of hatred or not, the Samaritan saw another person in need and felt compassion. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. He took care of him. He bandaged him up. He gave him a place to stay. He paid the debt that would be owed. He didn't just take care of him in the moment, which would have been more than enough. He checked back in to make sure that he was okay. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Not the priest, not the temple assistant, the Samaritan. Then Jesus said, yes, Now go and do the same. There's so many things that we can learn from this story. There's so many great parts and great things and great facts and great truths that Jesus shares in this parable. But I want to point out two takeaways that can help us be a good neighbor. The first takeaway is that being a good neighbor isn't about proximity. It's about knowing people. Being a good neighbor isn't about proximity, it's about people. Here's what I mean by that. Just because you live around people doesn't mean you're a good neighbor. Being a good neighbor means you know people, you see people. Another way to say this is through a question, do you know your neighbors? Not the easy details, right? What color their car is, if they have kids, what their dog's name is. Most of you know your neighbors as you say the dog's name and it's the parents of that dog. Do you know who they are? And in order for us to be good neighbors, we have to know our neighbors. Do you know your neighbors? I joke about this a lot, but my daughter Elise is an extreme extrovert. Not being able to go to school or church has been really hard on her. Just the other day, I got done with work a little bit early and I had enough time to join my girls for a walk. And as I caught up to them, Elise was staring at the ground and and talking. And when I got closer, I assumed that she was looking at something and maybe describing it to my wife, Ray, or talking about what was ever on the sidewalk. That's not what was happening. She was talking to a worm and relaying what the worm was saying to my wife. She is so extroverted that she's talking to worms right now. But a few weeks ago, after one of their walks, Elise began to tell me about how she saw a baby, uh, which makes sense because people are out on walks as well. But then she told me that she saw this baby through a window, which felt very weird. And then she told me that she stood outside of one of our neighbor's windows making silly faces at their baby for multiple minutes. And my response was to tell Elise that she probably shouldn't do that because she didn't know the baby. We didn't know the neighbor. My first reaction was to have her leave them alone, to not bother them. And I knew it kind of hurt Elise's feelings because all she was trying to do was say hi to the baby in a window. But then a few days later, after one of their walks, Elise came running inside to tell me that she learned the baby's name. Her name is Emma. 
And when Emma saw Elise walk by, she got really excited in the window and started waving and saying hi over and over and over again. And so her mom walked up to the window and opened it up so Emma could see Elise and so the mom could figure out what is Emma so excited about. And then from six feet apart, Ray, Elise, and Harper met some of our neighbors. And in a simple 10-minute conversation, they learned that Emma's mom is a high school art teacher and my wife is a middle school art teacher. They learned that her husband is in construction and is out every day, which makes them both a little bit nervous. They learned that Emma is turning one this month, and it's really hard on her parents right now because of social distancing. They can't celebrate with their family like they had hoped. All of that in a 10-minute conversation from six feet apart. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know the neighbor who's still working on the front lines and comes home every single day wondering if they're going to wake up with a fever? Do you know the neighbor who's working from home but struggling to find a rhythm? Do you know the neighbor that's self-quarantining because they came in contact with someone who they think might be sick? Do you know the neighbor that's been furloughed or the one who's lamenting the cancellation of a first birthday party, a wedding, a celebration that they've been planning for months, or the neighbor mourning the loss of a loved one? Do you know your neighbor? Listen, I know what some of you are thinking right now because I know what I'm thinking right now. I don't want to pry. I don't want to be awkward. I don't want to be nosy. You don't have to be. You just have to say hi and ask how they're doing. You will learn a lot if you take 10 minutes to see people and not hypothetically or literally walk to the other side of the road. This leads me to the second takeaway. Being a good neighbor isn't just about compassion. It's about what you do with it. Right? Jesus teaches in this story that compassion isn't enough. If the Samaritan had compassion and then kept walking, that means nothing, right? Compassion is easy. I follow multiple dog rescues on Facebook. And every day they post these really sad stories about dogs who have been rescued and need to be adopted. And the stories pull on my heartstrings. Just look at this puppy. Like this is the most adorable puppy you've ever seen in your life. This puppy was rescued from a puppy mill. But here's the thing. I have adopted zero puppies. I have compassion, but that doesn't mean much, right? We feel compassion for people who are going through a hard time right now. When we see the social media posts, when we read the news, when we hear the story shared by a friend, we feel compassion, but compassion isn't enough. What you do with that compassion is what truly matters. You see, the good Samaritan stops what he's doing, drops everything, and takes care of the Jewish man. He uses his resources to make sure he's okay. And it doesn't matter what race the Jewish man is. It doesn't matter why he was on that road, why he was on the way of blood. It doesn't matter if he did or did not just worship in the temple. It doesn't matter if the Samaritan believes he deserves to be helped. He had compassion and then didn't let anything get in the way of him doing something about it. And the compassion you feel should lead you to do something. James says in the Bible, you talk about faith, but I will show you my faith by how I live. Like, this is the same thing. You talk about compassion, but I will show you my compassion by how I live. What are you doing to show compassion to your neighbors? 
I don't mean to keep bragging about Elise, but to be honest, sometimes I strive to be more like her. When she found out that Emma wasn't going to have her first birthday party, she followed that up by telling me that she was gonna make Emma a card. And again, that's not something I would have done. I would have felt compassion and then walked home, put her bike away and moved on. What you do with compassion is what truly matters. Now let's go back to how Jesus finished the story in Luke 10, verse 38. It says, then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Go and do the same. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is a non-negotiable. There are no loopholes. Being a good neighbor goes hand in hand with loving God. And the reason we love our neighbor, the reason we show mercy, the reason we show compassion is because God showed us that love and mercy and compassion first. When we were beat down, when we were broken, when we were left for dead, God loved us. He valued us. He took care of us. And we are just imitating that love. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be a good neighbor. But I think you would agree, Jesus or not, this is a really good teaching. And I think it's an easy decision to go and be a good neighbor, to show people mercy, to care for the people who live around us, to help with our physical, emotional, and spiritual wounds, to go out of our way to do so, to inconvenience ourselves, and not just approach a relationship like we're the most important person in the world or in the room and treating others as such. And it starts with knowing your neighbors. So here's your challenge for this week. It's very simple. Meet your neighbors. Meet your neighbors while you're on a walk, while you're taking out the trash, while your kids are playing outside from six feet apart, get to know your neighbors. And if you're super shy and introverted or just nervous in general to meet new people, we're gonna help you with this. Tomorrow, we're gonna post online a card that you can download and print, and you can actually tape it to your neighbor's door so you can introduce yourself to the people that you don't know. Now, wash your hands first, of course, but if you're too nervous to say hi when you see them, this will help you take that step. And listen, I know this is scary. I know it means getting out of your comfort zone. I know that it isn't easy, but now, more than ever, we need to be good neighbors. And we need to know our neighbors. And over the next four weeks of this series, we're going to talk about what you can do when you meet your neighbors. How you can show compassion and not just feel it. So let's go back to the question at the beginning. Are you a good neighbor? Not just according to your own standards. Are you a good neighbor according to Jesus' standards? Do you show mercy to the lost and broken people around you? Do you have compassion? Do you do something with that compassion? Are you a good neighbor? Because here's the truth. You have neighbors right now who aren't working and are struggling to pay their bills. You have neighbors with kids who are out of school and they're struggling to balance work and kids who are at home. You have neighbors who are struggling with addiction and feel alone. You have neighbors who are afraid. You have neighbors who are longing to be seen, who want to be known. And Jesus says that it's our job to go and be a good neighbor 
and love others with the grace and mercy that he showed us first. So let's go and be good neighbors. Let's pray. God, um, I pray that we have the opportunity this week to see people, God, to know people. God, that we're not afraid to meet our neighbors and to ask them how they're doing. God, to ask them if we can do anything to help, just to get to know them a little bit. Because the truth is, God, we know that there are people that live all around us that are struggling right now. God, and we should believe, we should feel the burden that it is our job to take care of them. God, to not walk to the other side of the street to avoid the problem, to avoid the mess, to avoid the brokenness. So God, I pray that you give us the courage to do that. God, that you give us the humility to do that. God, ultimately, you give us the opportunity to meet a baby in a window and then meet a family, meet a neighbor. God, ultimately, we're thankful that we don't have to figure this out on our own, um, that the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the love that we are to extend to other people is what you've offered us. So God, I pray for anybody who's listening right now who's never said yes to that goodness, to that grace. I pray that today maybe is a day where they move closer to that. God, I pray for everybody uh, who follows you, who says that you are their leader. God, I pray this week they work on being a better neighbor and showing other people what you showed them first. That love and that hope and that joy. God, now more than ever, we need to be good neighbors. God, help us have compassion. And God, over the next few weeks, help us figure out what do we do with that compassion to show other people that they're valued, that they're worth it, that they're loved. God, help us be good neighbors. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.